This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, is the tide turning in Russia's relentless and unlawful war on Ukraine? Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Analysts say the recent battleground defeats by Russian forces and unity of the Western alliance against Russia's unlawful invasion of Ukraine have rattled President Vladimir Putin, who called up 300,000 reservists to fight in Ukraine, and he backed a plan to annex parts of the country. He has even hinted that he was prepared to use nuclear weapons to defend Russia. Even at the recent annual summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Conference in Uzbekistan, China voiced its displeasure with Russia. And Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi criticized Moscow, telling President Putin directly, quote, I know that today's era is not an era of war, and I have spoken to you on the phone about this, unquote. As the war enters its seventh month, evidence of war crimes mounted and the battlefield setbacks have multiplied for Russia. At the United Nations General Assembly in New York this week, U.S. President Joe Biden called out Russia for its blatant violation of the U.N. Charter. He said, quote, reports about atrocities by Putin's forces should make your blood run cold, close quote. Well, for more on this central issue of the day, we turn to two distinguished experts. Andrea Kendall-Taylor is senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. That's a policy group based in Washington. And Andrea just returned from Kiev. And Will Pomerantz, he is director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center, and that's a think tank also based in Washington. We're delighted to welcome them back via Microsoft Teams. Thanks for having us. So, Andrea Kendall-Taylor, you just got back from Kiev. Let me get you to weigh in on where we are today at this particular juncture with so many setbacks for Russia on the battlefield, retreating in the east, the horrific mass graves that we saw, evidence of war crimes and atrocities. The alliance seems to be holding so far. What would you like to tell us about what you've seen and how you see this juncture right now? Thanks, Carol. It's great to be back. The trip to Kyiv that we took obviously predated the announcements that we heard that you just alluded to, Carol, the mobilization and the referenda. So we were there really at a remarkable time on the tail end of Ukraine's very remarkable success with its counteroffensive in the north. And that was really important for Ukraine because it was the first time that they were able to demonstrate their ability to go on the offensive and recapture territory. So that was a huge boost to to Ukrainian fighters and also to Ukraine's Western backers who now have evidence of Ukraine's ability to eventually win this war. So I think it's that context that we have to understand what Vladimir Putin has done. I think he could read very clearly that the long-term trends were not in Russia's favor and he felt that he had to do something in order to stem the tide in this war. And so that's what I think we have to understand as the context for his announcements, which is the mobilization of, as you mentioned, at least 300,000. Many people are referring to this as a partial mobilization. 
But as many of us are digging into the text, partial is probably a misnomer. And this really gives Putin the ability to recruit and send into war for a very long time additional Russian fighters. I think the thing that I would underscore is even though this is an escalation by President Putin, in my view, this doesn't fundamentally alter the trajectory of the war. I think the underlying trends continue to favor Ukraine. And so what these announcements do, in my opinion, is they will likely prolong the war, but I don't think that they change the fact that Ukraine eventually will come out on top. Will Pomerantz, with your finger on the pulse of all things Russia and, of course, Vladimir Putin, I want to get you to weigh in on where we stand today regarding Putin's address this week, calling up a so-called partial mobilization, 300,000, which, of course, met with some protests. We'll talk about that later. The holding of these referenda in these occupied territories, the timing of that. Do you agree with Andrea Kendall-Taylor that all of this still does not necessarily alter the trajectory of the war, which is seemingly in favor of Ukraine, but that it will prolong things? Your take. I agree with Andrea. And I do think that Ukraine has really waged a remarkable war against Russia. And I think that the question about mobilization really stresses that Ukraine has dealt a major blow to the Russian army and that the fact that Putin has to mobilize troops and it's unclear how prepared they are. It's quite unclear. You mentioned the protests, whether Russians even want to go and fight for this cause. So Putin has had to basically change his game plan. And it's unclear whether this actually can work. It's not clear whether Putin and the regions can actually get enough people to change the tide of the war, and it's unclear what their response will be. So I think Putin has his back against the wall, and the mobilization and the question about the referenda confirm that. So back to you, Andrea Kendall-Taylor, with regard to Will's comment that Putin has his back against the wall. Some analysts say that a cornered Putin is a more dangerous Putin. And of course, we say that in the context of the fact that he mentioned potential use of nuclear weapons. So let me get you to react to that, that statement. How seriously should we take it? He says, I'm not bluffing, but what is your response? Well, I think it's hard just to slough it off because, as you've noted, the speech that he gave when he announced the Russian mobilization contained a lot of very direct and explicit nuclear saber rattling. I think the thing that was extremely concerning about his speech is that he appeared to, in many ways, change Russian nuclear doctrine or at least talked in ways that contradict Russia's longstanding policy. You know, their current policy says that they can use a nuclear weapon when the existence of the state is threatened. But in this speech, Putin talked in much looser, more nebulous terms. He talked about using maximum tools to defend, quote unquote, Russia's territorial integrity and also to protect the independence and freedom of Russians. And I think that term territorial integrity is especially concerning given the announcement of the referenda, which would illegally bring these Ukrainian territories into the Russian state. 
And that raises just so many questions because we have to emphasize that Russia doesn't even control all of the four territories where these illegal and sham referenda will take place. So this does indeed raise a lot of questions about the potential for nuclear escalation. But I will tell you, Carol, the thing that I heard resoundingly in my trip to Ukraine in multiple conversations with different Ukrainians was that in their view, Russia's use of a nuclear weapon will not change the outcome of this war. It will not change how they fight this war. It will only increase the costs they have to incur to defeat Russia. And so, again, we don't want to downplay or just slough off these nuclear threats. We have to take them seriously. But I think Ukraine and the West also have to take a position where we cannot be deterred by these threats, because as many in the administration are pointing out, what's then to say that Russia can't at some later date claim that parts of Lithuania or Latvia or Estonia are part of the Russian state and extend his nuclear umbrella over those territories. So my sense is that we're in this very risky moment, but the pressure and the momentum is such that I think that people will be undeterred by Putin's nuclear threats. Will Pomerantz, what is your take on this type of rhetoric, which Biden, of course, denounced vociferously in his address to the U.N. General Assembly. He denounced Putin's reckless rhetoric about the use of nuclear weapons in a a direct violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. What do you think he's doing with this type of rhetoric? I think Putin has weaponized all of Russia's assets. So they've imposed oil and gas restrictions. They have weaponized and limited the ability of Ukraine to export grain. And most importantly, they are attacking nuclear power stations in Ukraine. So I think that Putin, in terms of what his options are, I think that is his biggest attempt to basically try to blackmail the Europeans and say, blame the Ukrainians for attacking the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. And he'll say, you don't know which way the wind will blow. So therefore, you need to take off these sanctions and limit the restrictions on Russian travel and so forth. So I think it's an example of how Putin has weaponized all his assets. It's not working. And quite frankly, Putin really telegraphed all these moves in his constitutional amendments in 2020, where he asserted that the Russian state could defend Russians abroad. And he basically said that Russia cannot alienate any territory that is a part of the Russian Federation. So that if indeed he decides to annex Donetsk and Luhansk and other parts of Ukraine, he will assert that this is now a part of Russian territory and it cannot be negotiated. So I think Putin is stretching his role and his options to the limit. Indeed, and he is certainly trying to rattle the West. You are listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. My guests are Andrea Kendall-Taylor. She's Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, just back from Kiev. And Will Pomerantz, he is Director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. And we're discussing Ukraine's advances in recapturing territory previously occupied by Russia and to what extent we are at a turning point in this conflict. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on most of your favorite podcast apps. You may also find us at www.voaafrica.com encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Here's a shout out to a loyal Facebook fan, Saufal Nise from Cambodia. 
If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com. Or as always, you may like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to our discussion with regard to this unity of the West, how it can be sustained or not. Andrea Kendall Taylor, of course, Russia initially, right, Vladimir Putin thought he would run over Kiev in a matter of days, and that would be it. Of course, he was sadly mistaken. He didn't think that the West, that NATO, the EU would stick together, that they would defend Ukraine. And so we're now six, seven months into this. How do you assess the West, its ability to stay the course despite the coming winter and energy supplies, the inflation, domestic opposition potentially? How do you see it? Well, you're so right, Carol, that this really has been just a series of poor assumptions by President Putin. And as you said, on every account, he's been significantly wrong about Ukraine's ability to fight. And also, as you said, about the West's ability to remain united and push back. I think we have to be honest that this winter will be a difficult period for transatlantic unity. As you mentioned, with high energy prices and inflation, there's really a lot of pressure on Western societies, on European societies in particular. And we've already seen some evidence of that with some kind of small scale protests in the Czech Republic and different cities inside Germany. Part of those movements have called on their governments to suspend sanctions on Russia and to end weapons supplies. So we have to be real that there are people who are being negatively impacted by the high energy prices and inflation as a result of President Putin's actions. But I still remain optimistic. I think the cohesion and the unity up to this point has been remarkable. And even in places like Germany, I think where there are a lot of concerns on the energy front, you hear from Germans that they are willing to incur costs in order to stand up to the Russians. Many governments in the Baltic states, for example, are clearly communicating to their citizens that Ukraine is paying the ultimate price with their lives, with the destruction of their country, and making the case to their citizens that the least that we can do is to pay higher energy prices and inflation for the time being. So my sense is that even though there is going to be hardship, it will be a critical period. We may see the return of some far-right parties in some European capitals who are able to capitalize on that. But my sense is is that the unity will hold. And the more that Putin escalates, I think the easier it becomes for the West to remain united. Turning to you, Will Pomerantz, do you also think that Western unity will hold, but winter is coming, to paraphrase Game of Thrones, <laughs> and a book by that name, by Gary Kasparov, the Europeans are going to have to make sacrifices, reducing their dependence on Russian energy supplies. Can they sustain this long enough to keep Ukraine in a position to prevail? I am cautiously optimistic that the unity that Andrea described will hold. It's been remarkable. And I think that one has to understand that from an economic standpoint, it's the Europeans who have made the most sacrifices at work. They had the biggest business dealings with Russia. They had the gas and oil relationship. And so one would have thought potentially that it was the Europeans that was the weak link in this whole endeavor. But the Europeans have held strong. And I also think that the Europeans will be reacting to the atrocities that have occurred in Ukraine. There are various attempts to try Russian for war crimes, for crimes against aggression. And I think that this will only increase once the full scale of the atrocities become known in Ukraine. So Andrea Kendall-Taylor, 
Let me ask you about some of Russia's so-called allies, particularly China and then, of course, India, which I alluded to in my introduction. At the recent Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan, China apparently expressed its displeasure about Russia's war in Ukraine. And of course, I quoted Narendra Modi. He's none too happy about the situation either. So what does that say about Russia's own so-called friends, let alone its adversaries in the West? I thought that was extremely interesting to see what happened with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meetings. And in my view, I think it contributed perhaps to Putin's calculus about the mobilization and these so-called referenda. And I say that because I think in that moment, Putin must have been and must be concerned that Russia's standing, its relative standing compared to its peers, China and India is declining. And so I think he understands that his war in Ukraine is a liability. And I think he's worried that a defeated Russia in Ukraine will really be a huge liability for Russia on the international stage. So in my mind, those meetings may have, in fact, contributed to Putin's decision to mobilize, to avoid being perceived as such a loser and a weak power on the international stage. Will Pomerantz, what do you take away from China's and India's displeasure expressed at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit to Vladimir Putin regarding the direction and trajectory of the war in Ukraine? I think Vladimir Putin thought that even though he was alienating Europe, that he could count on allies such as China and longstanding allies such as India to back him up. And it's quite clear that that is not going to be the case. So I agree with Andrea that he then turned to this idea of referendum and the idea that somehow he's annexing territory. To be a great Russian leader, in fact, you have to annex territory. And those who lose territory, like Gorbachev, are not considered great Russian leaders. So I think that because of the Shanghai cooperation questions raised by India and China has made Putin change his calculus. And he can't rely on these allies. He can't rely, quite frankly, on some of the post-Soviet states as well. So Putin has really made a mess of what he thought were his allies. And going forward, he doesn't know who he can rely on. Turning back to you, Andrea Kendall-Taylor, let's pick up on the referendum that were announced this week. Talk a bit more about the rationale for that and where do you think that's going to go? So it was the leaders, the so-called Russian-backed leaders, these occupation authorities who have called for the referenda. And so Vladimir Putin, in his speech, then agreed that that was going to be a good idea. But we all know that this is orchestrated by the Kremlin, in part for the reasons that Will said, that in order to try to put on a perception that Russia can come out victorious that it can walk away with something more than when it began this war. For those reasons, Putin has to have something to which he can point to show success. But we all know that they are sham. And it's just remarkable that the Kremlin is proposing to hold voting in these territories when Russia doesn't even control the entirety of any of these four different districts in Ukraine. And I guess the other point I would highlight that I think is also important in the calculation is that by annexing these territories, it may also allow the Kremlin to send conscripts into this war. So Russia's main problem is its manpower. So mobilization will in part deal with that. But by claiming that these territories are part of Russia, it may provide a legal basis for the Kremlin to be able to send conscripts into these territories 
territories. Turning to you, Will Pomerantz, remind us the four regions about which we're talking and what do you think is behind this regarding the uh, referenda in these so-called occupied regions? Well, the main regions are Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kherson. Kherson just recently re-emerged as a potential annexation region. But I want to pick up on a couple of things that Andreas said. If indeed the goal is to send conscripts into battle into these regions, the question is really, are they going to be prepared for the fighting that is going to take place? Indeed, there is every evidence that they're not getting any sort of training. So basically, we'll go into the conflict unprepared. So the fact that Putin is contemplating sending these conscripts into battle really shows his desperation. The other thing that I want to pick up on Andreas' point is that Putin always says that Russians are being discriminated against in Ukraine and that he wants this invasion to denazify Ukraine. However, all these regions that have been the most heavily bombarded by Russia, including Kharkiv, are Russian-speaking regions. So, in fact, it is Putin and the Russian Federation that is destroying their lives and inflicting these atrocities on the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine. Do you have any insight, Will, very briefly on you know how these uh, so-called Russian speakers, the leaders of these breakaway regions, really feel uh, in terms of their allegiance and have their attitudes changed as a result of the defeats by Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine? I'm not aware of any sort of changes in strategy for these regions. Indeed, they are dependent on Russia. And a lot of these regions are very corrupt so that their corruption and their ability to maintain their power is dependent on Russia. So it's not, in fact, that they are liberating these regions. It's they are entrenching the corrupt leadership that Russia has allowed to govern these regions for several years. Carol, the other thing that's remarkable is to see the way that Ukrainians in these regions, including Russian-speaking Ukrainians, are responding to these so-called occupation authorities. There is a very aggressive kind of sabotage campaign, such that the Kremlin has had to stop showing pictures of the authorities that they're sending to these regional occupation administrations. Multiple of these Russian-backed occupation authorities have been assassinated with car bombs and other things. So it is clear that the citizens who are living in these territories do not welcome the Russians as liberators, as they believed that they would be greeted as. And we can see the terrible atrocities in the wake of the liberation of all the regions that Russia has occupied. So at least amongst the people who are living there, there is an active resistance to their presence in the country. Andrea Kendall-Taylor, if there is an active resistance in the Russian-speaking regions by Ukrainians against these authorities, now let's take a look at the protests we've seen in the aftermath of Putin's announcement of a partial mobilization of 300,000 Russians. What do you make of these protests? Are we seeing some cracks within Russia? Well, I think it's remarkable to see that they're happening at all, in large part because of the very high risk that is associated with the people who do turn out on the streets. So the very fact that this many Russians have protested in response to the call for mobilization, I think is remarkable. So far, over a thousand Russians have been arrested for taking part in these protests. Putin knew all along 
along that mobilization would be unpopular. And that's why he has put off calling for it as long as possible. President Putin now is facing so many challenges to his legitimacy as the leader of Russia. He's worried about losing his legitimacy and being discredited if he loses territory, if he's the one responsible for losing Ukraine. He also faces challenges from Russians who are not supportive of this war. He faces challenges from Russians on the right, more hawkish nationalist Russians, who would prefer that he go even further to accomplish his objectives. So he is facing challenges from multiple directions. So I would say the fact that he opted for mobilization says to me that he is more concerned about his hold on power should he lose the war in Ukraine than he is worried about Russians taking to the streets. And again, we'll see if that calculation is borne out. But what I believe firmly is that his hold on power is weaker now than it was before the invasion. And it's weaker even now in the wake of calling for mobilization, because now everyday Russians are going to have to pay the cost for his strategic blunder. You get the last word, Will Pomerantz. Andrea is right. The cost for protesting is incredibly high in Russia. They have these foreign agents laws. They have a whole host of repressive legislation that discourages and puts a price on any sort of protest. So I think just the fact that these Russians are protesting in significant numbers is a very important development. But the last word I'll say is that military defeat and economic collapse are two powerful tools in any sort of revolution or uprising. And unfortunately for Putin, he has both of them now. Well, on that cautiously optimistic note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guests, Andrea Kendall-Taylor, Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and Will Pomerantz, he's Director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Please join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.